Good evening to everyone. It is good to see you all. I'm very thankful for everyone's presence. When you consider the topics of work and work ethic and then also laziness, those topics are certainly not anything new. Um, I think when you listen to generations, it's probably pretty common for an older generation to believe that the upcoming generations are woefully lacking in work ethic and much lazier compared to them or generations that came before. But there's not a new need for hard work that hasn't always been around, and laziness is certainly not a new problem. Work is something that has existed from the very creation of the world, as we're going to see, and slothfulness or laziness is something that's addressed all throughout the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testaments. But when it comes to working, of course, laziness isn't the only problem. There is the potential problem of what has become known as workaholism in our day and age, or simply going to the other extreme of laziness and working too much or making too much of one's job and career. And that too is not a new issue. I think that's something that's addressed in scriptures also. But to address these topics, the congregation in Columbia had three primary questions that they had asked me to consider. Um, and those were these. First of all, Referring to 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, there's a passage there when speaking about uh, widows and qualifications for widows. Uh, Paul says that any Christian who refuses to care for a widowed family member is considered worse than an unbeliever. And the question is, does that, that mean that the church should withdraw fellowship from such individuals? And that's a passage that's frequently used to show the importance of providing for our family. The second question that I've been asked to cover is, should a Christian take welfare, unemployment, or other government subsidies? And also, when do we reach the point of being an alcohol or a workaholic, and what do we do about it? So to cover those questions, the outline that I'm going to go through tonight, or the study, the way I'm going to approach that, is first of all, we're going to consider what the Bible has to say about work. Now, that's not going to be an in-depth study. That could be a sermon in and of itself to look at everything the Bible has to say about work. But at least in some brief terms, we're going to look at the Bible's viewpoint concerning work. And then we'll also look at what the Bible's view is on laziness. And from there, we'll try and address these questions by looking at how the church disciplines laziness, considering the topic of Christians and welfare, and also address the situation of workaholism. Now, before we dive into this study, there's a couple of things that I think we need to consider. And first of all, is that as we approach a topic like this, we have to remind ourselves and we have to force ourselves to define terms and concepts biblically. When it comes to things like work and work ethic, many people have different opinions. In fact, even between cultures, there's different standards and different ideas. For example, a man who works a job that entails physical labor, something like farming or construction, something that's very difficult and physically grueling, might view a man who sits in an air-conditioned office at a computer all day as performing and engaging in some lesser form of of work might even consider that man to be lazy. Secondly, from different viewpoints that sometimes are skewed, we may come up with our own ideas. For instance, a lazy person is probably going to define anybody that's simply a hard worker as a workaholic. On the other end, a workaholic is probably going to define anybody that works less than they do as somewhat lazy. And so we have to re realize that we can very easily come up with our own preconceptions about what is lazy or what is hard work or what is working too hard. Even among different countries, like I said, there's different ideas of what a standard work week is, work week is what standard working hours are. Even in our own country, what was a standard work week has changed over time. And so there's nuance. And so our goal is to define things biblically. As we navigate the topic, we have to be willing to check our own definitions and backgrounds and predispositions and ensure that we are defining things in a biblical way. And secondly, and just as importantly, as we search for biblical answers in a topic like this, we have to avoid shaping our biblical ideas through political ideologies. And this is especially true when it comes to questions like welfare and assistance and laziness in this entire topic. In our country, 
welfare programs have certainly become a divisive talking point. And the opposing viewpoints about what the government should or shouldn't do, what people should or shouldn't get, seem to be growing further and further apart in our political environment. And so it can be difficult to separate ourselves and our views and uh, from our political environment. But if we really want a biblical answer, we have to. Because I'm sure you have opinions, and I have opinions. They may be good opinions. They may be valid opinions. There may be valid crit- criticisms about the system our country operates under. But those really aren't the things that as Christians we should be overly concerned about. What our country does is what our country does. The question has to do with what is right for the Christian. What does the scripture teach us? And so we must be careful that when we talk about situations or topics like this, we're talking biblically not politically or carnally. And so first of all, let's dive in and just consider briefly, at least, what the Bible has to say about work. You know, a lot of people have a very low view of work. To some, it's a necessary evil. To some others, it's something that should be avoided at all possible costs. There are even people that might have a very strong work ethic, and yet a poor view of work. They know that they have to, and they're going to do a good job while they work, but that doesn't mean that they have a good view of work. There are many, many Americans today, and probably uh, citizens in other countries as well, where they have such systems, that are working very, very hard right now, but the primary reason is so that they can save up enough money to have a comfortable retirement where one day they will finally get to cease working altogether. But the Bible has a very different view concerning work than your typical individual uh, that you might see. And as you look at the overall tenor of the Bible's message on work, what you really find is a very positive one. You can see this most assuredly in the fact that God himself is a worker. In the very beginning of the Bible, when we read those accounts of creation in Genesis chapter 1, and then we turn over to Genesis chapter 2, all of those events of creation are considered as God's work. It is literally described as God's work there in Genesis 2 verse 2. So from the very beginning, one of the first things that we learn about God is that he is a worker. Now that being said, in Genesis 2 verse 2 is also the passage where we learn that God rested from his works on the seventh day and set up a pattern showing that both work and rest are divinely sanctioned activities. Rest is not laziness. It can become laziness, just like work can become workaholism. But both rest and work are divinely sanctioned and something that God has been said to partake in. As you look through scriptures, we won't go through all of these, but just I thought I read across this somewhere and had never thought about this. I thought it was interesting, but there are several times throughout the scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, where to learn something about God or what he does or how he works, he is compared to a worker. He's compared to several different types of profession. And what that shows us again is God is a worker. And as God's children, our goal is to be like our heavenly father. Thus, if God is a worker, then we too should be diligent workers. And so it makes sense that because God is a worker and we are created in his image, the concept of work has been defined and designed by God. Now many people, this is a very common view. And so if you hold this view, there's many people that have held this view. I'm not trying to be mean. Uh, But anyway, there's a view that work is a result of the curse. Many people equate the reason that there is work and labor because of man's sin and the fall in the garden. But the fact is, work existed before the fall in the garden. In Genesis 2 verse 15, this is before the temptation and the fall of man. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Man's existence in the garden was not just lounging about, eating delicious fruit and enjoying the scenery all day. But he had a job to do. He had a work to do. Now before sin and before the fall... That was a perfect work. It was a pleasurable work. It was a work of fulfillment. And that's what changed after the fall. It wasn't that man now had to work, but the nature 
of work changed. In Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19, we read about that curse where God says, Cursed be the, is the ground because of you. And now he says, listen to this, In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat it till you return to the ground. What's different here? It's not that man's working. It's the toil and the pain and the hardship that is going to accompany man's work. That's the curse, not work itself. And so as I think uh, it's Ron Quarter that I heard say this one time, sin didn't bring about work. Sin merely took the fun out of it. Instead of having a perfect godly joy in our work, we experience often the toil and the pain. But that doesn't mean that work is bad. Instead, we can still view it for what it is, something that is good and right and scriptural. Well, we could go throughout a lot of other scriptures but just a very quick uh, run through, we see work talked about positively and legislated throughout the scriptures. For example, if you read about the building of the tabernacle, you'll find that God talks about blessing men and endowing men with skills so that they could perform the work of the tabernacle. God spoke very highly of master craftsmen and skilled laborers, and they were used for the building of his tabernacle and then later on in the temple. Of course, worse work is used in metaphoric and parabolic teaching in both the Old and the New Testaments. And work is legislated by God's Word. Christian servants, or we could be, consider that to be today's employees, are admonished to obey their masters and work heartily in Colossians 3. Christians are commanded to live quietly and work with your hands in 1 Thessalonians 4. And likewise, they're told to labor and do honest labor with your own hands in Ephesians 4.28. And from the perspective of master or employer, work is also legislated by God's word. Masters are admonished to be fair and just in Colossians 4. Exploitation and withholding payment from workers is condemned in James chapter 5. And also something that's interesting to note is the most notable individuals in the New Testament. In fact, most of the writers of the New Testament, we know their everyday job. We know what they did for a living. Jesus, we're told, was a carpenter. Peter and John were fishermen. Paul was a tip maker. Luke was a physician. Now, not to read too much into that, but I just think it's interesting that we know the jobs that these men held. Even Jesus, who had such an important role of preaching the gospel, he worked, he labored. And so it's clear that work is not demeaning or beneath God's people. On the contrary, the best examples that we have to follow in the Bible were workers. Now, as far as the purpose of work, we could spend a great deal of time on this, but we'll do this very quickly. The Bible outlines why we work in the New Testament. It is so that we can provide for ourselves, so that we can provide for our families, and also so that we can help others. Now, as much as the Bible has to say positively for work, it has a great deal to say concerning laziness or slothfulness and always from a negative light. Never do we see a positive example that I can think of or call to mind from the Bible about lazy individuals. Instead, we do see many teachings against laziness, especially in the wisdom literature. Proverbs is full of rebuke for and warnings against sluggards and slothfulness. In the Lord's parable of the talents, you remember the one talent man was rebuked and he was condemned. And we often teach, and rightfully so, that that was because he didn't, uh, he just buried his talent and didn't do what he ought to have done with that. But why did that man do that? Well, one of the things Jesus says to him, he calls him in Matthew 25 and 26, he says, you wicked and slothful servant. The New King James says, lazy servant. One of the reasons that man just buried that coin, that talent, was because he was lazy. And he was condemned. For that laziness. When Paul quoted a Cretan prophet in Titus chapter 1, apparently there was a Cretan prophet that said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul agreed with that assessment, and because of that, he exhorted Titus to thus rebuke them sharply. So clearly, laziness is not an attribute that should define a child of God. Now, those are very brief uh, overviews of the Bible on work and laziness. That brings us to the first question that I'm supposed to cover, and that is, what is a church supposed to do if a Christian is lazy? How does a church or a congregation discipline someone who is lazy? 
more to the point, is there a time when the church must practice uh, formal discipline against a lazy Christian? Now, first, I think, again, we need to note that we should be careful here because it's so easy to define laziness in various ways. For example, one man might work 60 plus hours a week at a demanding job, and thus he might view another man who works only part-time or who works full-time but only 40 hours a week as lazy. Or, this is very possible, and I think probably all of us deal with this in some form or another, but a man may have lazy tendencies in certain areas of his life, but not be lazy in others. For example, a man may be lazy in tendencies concerning his own health. Maybe he absolutely detests working out or doing anything physical for his own health. And someone else who is very in tune with their health and spends a great deal of time working or at least some time working on their health may view that person as lazy for not working as they ought to. Or maybe someone is seen as doesn't keep up his yard as well as he ought to. Maybe one man spends hours and hours in his yard. It always looks nice. It's always kept up. And the other man's yard is very rarely mowed or weed-eated the way we think it might ought to be. Or maybe an individual is a little bit lazy when it comes to their classwork. Well, all of these things may be indic indications of laziness, and maybe they even need to be admonished and rebuked, such as Timothy was exhorted to do for the Cretans uh, there where he was working. But many of these areas don't constitute a reason for the church to discipline a Christian. If a man doesn't mow his yard as he ought to and keep his yard up very nicely, uh, that may be a matter of laziness when it comes to keeping up his yard, but that doesn't mean that he's lazy in other areas, and it certainly doesn't mean that he should be disciplined by the church. However, there certainly can come a point when a person's slothfulness can cause problems, and the church might even be required to take action. And there's two primary passages that address that situation. The first of one is the one that the main question I've been asked to come over, uh, look at is, and that is 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now in 1 Timothy chapter 5, if you go and you read that, you find that the context is talking about widows. Paul's talking about the church, when the church can support, that is financially take care of, widows in the congregation. He outlines what a true widow is. It's a widow who's indeed, it's a widow that meets certain qualifications. And so Paul provides these qualifications for the church, for these widows that are eligible. And when the need and the qualifications meet that of 1 Timothy 5, then a congregation should support needy widows. If there is the need and, uh, and they qualify, that's not just a good idea, that's a command for the congregation. But Paul makes clear in this passage that if a widow has family, it is first their responsibility to care for the widow, not the church. That's stated positively in verse 4 when Paul mentions that if a widow has grandchildren or children, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So that's kind of a positive reason that Paul gives. This is a godly thing to do. This is a way for you to return what your parents have done for you. That's the positive reason why you should be taking care of widows, those in need, in your own family. But then a few verses later in verse 8, Paul returns to this familiar responsibility, but he does so from a negative perspective. And he says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, when we look at this passage and when we quote this, we need to remember and consider the context in its fullness. Often this, is, this verse is boiled down to mean if a man does not work and thus provide for his family, then he's worse than an unbeliever. I think we need to go a bit deeper than that and consider this a bit more thoroughly. First of all, remember the context is dealing with caring for widows. Now this would indicate that we are responsible for more than just our immediate household. And that's exactly what Paul says. When you look at that verse, Paul singles out our own family. He says we are especially responsible for the members of our own household. But he also includes to care for relatives. And that stands, as a, that stands against especially his own household. So that is his immediate family. But then there may even be opportunities beyond just a man's wife and children that are in the home where a family has the opportunity to care for their relatives. And Paul makes that very clear. So when we consider our responsibilities, our first and primary one is to provide for the members of our household. And that word provide means to look after, 
take care of, or see to. It refers to the foresight that's required and the action that needs to accompany that foresight in order to recognize and care for the needs of the family. We are supposed to be doing that for our families. And beyond our, that immediate responsibility, there might be times and opportunities to care for other relatives, such as caring for a widow, which might be our mother, or perhaps our mother-in-law. And when people refuse to do this, Paul uses the strongest terminology to describe that individual who denies that God-given obligation. He levies two condemnations against that individual. He says, first of all, he is someone who has denied the faith. That word deny in the Greek means to disclaim, disown, or renounce. Paul is saying that when we refuse to care for and provide for our loved ones, that is tantamount to renouncing our faith. That's as bad as saying, I don't believe anymore. That's as bad as saying, I'm not a Christian. It's tantamount to denying the faith. And really, that shouldn't be much of a surprise. James, in his letter, says that part of pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That's over in James 1, verse 27. And those instructions are not about family. That's just a general saying. That's just in general, James is saying, to care for orphans and widows. That's a category that shows us caring for the needy. Now, if caring for the needy, if caring for orphans and widows is part of a Christian responsibility, then how bad is it if a Christian refuses to care for a widow in his own household, in his own family. He's not partaking in, in pure and undefiled religion in any way. He has denied the faith. And secondly, Paul says, they are worse than an unbeliever. Now, how is that possible? How could you say that a person, uh, just because they don't care for one of their family members, is worse than worldly sinners? Well, I think that what Paul's saying here is even people in the world tend to take care of the needs of their families. Now, there may be evil exceptions. There were in Paul's day, and there are in our day as well, where people don't. But by and large, I think the people of our society and our world understand the responsibility to care for those like widows within their family. And so, if a child of God, enlightened as they are by God's Word, behaves in a way, chooses to behave in a way, that is beneath even the standards of unrepentant sinners, then that is terrible indeed. And so the question, should such an individual be disciplined by the church? It's a bit of a difficult question in that passage because that's really not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about church discipline here. He's talking about caring for widows, and this is kind of a byproduct that he's mentioning. And the purpose is to show why they should never fall into this category. But that being said, I think we can ask a couple of questions that give us an answer. First of all, uh, should a person who persists in behavior that is tantamount to renouncing their faith and a person who behaves worse than worldly people be accepted by the church without discipline or without a withdrawal from the church? Well, I would think not. If we had this in any other area of faith where someone was tantamount to denouncing the faith, we would recognize that they are not a faithful Christian and not in fellowship. But also that last phrase that Paul gives us, I think, gives us an indication that the church can and should practice discipline for such an individual. That idea of behaving worse than an unbeliever. That's found another time. There's another case in the New Testament where that idea comes up, and that's in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul's writing to the church at Corinth about an, a case of immorality there. He rebukes them because not only were they tolerating a case of immorality, but they were tolerating one that wouldn't even be tolerated among pagans. Now, Paul's later instructions to the church regarding that man was that the sitting brother was to be disciplined by the church. Now that's not to say that the church should only uh, or should tolerate immorality or other sin so long as it's in line with what the world standards are. That's not what this is saying at all. But it's what we know is that when a Christian behaves in a way that even the world recognizes as wrong, that even the world looks down upon, that is an egregious problem. And if such a brother or sister is unrepentant of that egregious behavior, then the church must discipline them. Now, before we leave this passage, I do think it's, uh, I want to reconsider the context again. Because, like I said, we often jump from this passage to the example of a brother who's not working and thus not providing for his family. Um, and that may be covered by this passage. And in some ways, I think it is. But 
I don't think that's what Paul's really speaking about. Paul seems to be referring to individuals who have the capability of supporting their widows, but they choose not to. This might include children or grandchildren that have jobs, even well-paying jobs, but they refuse to shoulder the burden of caring for their family. Think of the Pharisees. Remember when they were rebuked by Jesus because they had set up their own traditions that would allow them to basically hold on to their money until they died, and then they would be donating it to the temple, and thus they couldn't support their mothers and fathers in their older age. And Jesus rebuked them for that. Now, it wasn't that the Pharisees were lazy. They were studious men. Many of them were probably very hard workers. They were financially stable, if not wealthy, more than uh, not. And yet, they coveted their wealth and thus denied their fam familial responsibility. And we can rest assured that the Lord is just as displeased today when Christians slough off their responsibility to care for family as He was with the Pharisees on that occasion. Now, if the reason that we don't care for our family is because we've been too lazy to work, and we're just simply compounding laziness to our other sins and problems. But there's another passage in the New Testament that deals with disciplining uh, uh, idle brethren. And that is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we'll be getting to this, Lord willing, here in a couple weeks uh, in our own studies through the book of Thessalonians. But Paul apparently had to teach about working in idleness more than once with the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11 and 12, Paul urged the brethren to work with your hands. And he mentions there that that was an instruction that he had already given them. And he also exhorted Christians to admonish the idol in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. So Paul commanded the Thessalonians to work while he was there with them and present. He urged it again by his first letter. And he said that the idol should be admonished. But by the time Paul wrote the second letter, there were some who apparently were still idle. And so in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6, Paul says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. And for time's sake, I won't read all of that passage, and we won't go into an in-depth exposition of that verse, but there's some very simple and straightforward points that we can see in that passage. First of all, idleness is not in accordance with the traditions or the commands that Paul taught. When an individual is idle and chooses to be idle, when they have the ability to be working but they don't, that is contrary to the tradition and the patterns that God has provided the church. Secondly, when brethren persisted in idleness, Paul commanded, notice that, he commanded them to be avoided. That's reiterated twice in both verse 6 and verse 14. Also, Paul reiterates something that he taught in person. He says, if a person isn't willing to work, then the person does not eat. Now, we need to note here the factor of willingness. Paul is not talking about people who cannot work. He's clearly speaking about those who can work, but are not willing to do so. Now, what the reason for their unwillingness was in Thessalonica, we're not told. It might have been laziness. It might have been uh, in, uh, mistaken views about the impending coming of Christ. That's a theory that's given. It could have been any number of reasons. Whatever the reason was doesn't matter. The message is clear. If you have the ability to work, you should. If you have the ability to work and don't, and instead try and rely upon the generosity of others, then the others are supposed to not give in and enable that behavior. Also, it appears that idlers were not just not working in Thessalonica, but somehow they were disruptive. They were busy, actually. It wasn't that they just weren't busy. It's just the wrong sort of busyness since they were busy bodies. They aren't just commanded to work, but they're encouraged to do so quietly. And the idleness of these brethren was in some way disrupting the peace of the congregation. Also, Paul commanded and encouraged the idlers to work and earn their own living. And we see also in these passages that an idler should be ashamed of such living. A man or a woman that refuses to do what they can in their capabilities and their capacity and instead just simply relies upon others to care for them, that's a shameful situation. That's not saying that it's a shame for a person who is disabled or a shame for a person who's going through a tough spot to receive some assistance. We'll talk about that in a moment. But when a person continues to choose to live in a state of letting others take care of them, when they have the ability to take care of themselves, that's a shameful thing for a Christian. 
And so we see that the church is to appropriately discipline such an individual, but they are to do so out of brotherly love. It's not a matter of annoyance. It's not a matter of animosity. It's to correct and help the brother. And now let's go to this next question. The concept of the Christian and welfare. This, of course, is a situation that's a modern question for us. I don't know that very many first century Christians had to ask the question about welfare. I don't know all the details of Rome, but I don't believe they were giving out too many welfare programs uh, for those that were needy. But it is a situation that exists today, and it's a situation that confronts probably most congregations in one form or another. And so to address the question about whether the Christian can take government welfare assistance, I think we need to discuss a few things. First of all, we need to understand what welfare is, or at least what the goal of welfare is. Now, many people debate uh, what is the goal or purpose of welfare in our country. Some would say it's a very generous thing. Some would say it's a matter of control. But for the sake of this study, we'll try and avoid the political issues and focus on what typically should be the primary goal of welfare-type programs. A simple definition of welfare is to receive government financial assistance for basic material needs. Another bit fancier-sounding uh, definition is statutory procedure or social effort designed to promote the basic physical and material well-being of people in need. Now, those things sound good, and those are good definitions. But second, we want to ask, what does the Bible teach or illustrate about this concept of welfare? Well, first of all, in both the Old and New Testaments, we actually see the principle of welfare illustrated among God's people, and that being assistance to help those who are poor. Now, both the Old and New Testament also confirm that poverty will always exist in the world. As noble as it may sound to try and uh, wipe out or obliterate poverty, it's not going to happen. It will never happen. It's been said in God's word that there will always be poor. God told the Israelites in the old law, the poor will, there will never cease to be poor in your land. Jesus said in John 12, the poor you always have with you. There will always, as long as this world is spinning, be poverty in some way and in some fashion. But scripture doesn't stop there. The fact that poverty exists and always will is not an excuse for God's children to turn a blind eye to the needs of others. On the contrary, it's one of the reasons why scripture calls us to be generous helpers of those who are in need. So we can look through the Old Testament, and again, we'll do this much quicker than we could. We could spend some time on this, but we see some interesting things regarding the poor and the needy. You know, in the law of Moses, one of the laws was, and you can go read Deuteronomy 14 and look at the details for yourself, but part of the law required that every three years, a portion of Israel's tithing, this was the tithing of um, uh, food and produce, was to go towards feeding those in need. It was for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, and also the Levite, because the Levites didn't have an inheritance of their own. And so a portion of the tithes that were given by the Jewish people, by the Israelites, every three years, that was brought out and given to those who were in need. That is a form of a welfare program. Also in Leviticus 19 and other passages, um, harvesters were commanded, landowners were commanded, that when they went out and they were uh, harvesting their crops, they were not supposed to go through and make sure that they got up all the way to the edge and they covered every aspect of their field. Also as the harvesters were going through and they dropped some things, those were called the gleanings. They weren't supposed to go back through after they'd already gone through and pick up all the spare pieces. Now, why was that? It was so that the poor, so that those who were in need could come and get that food. Those who didn't have their own land and the money to buy the food, they were able to go and get this produce and thus provide for themselves. Now, I think there's an important note there. Um, first of all, there are times, like with orphans and widows, where assistance was simply given without anything in return. For others, opportunity was made available for them to work for their provision. Now, the landowner wasn't told to go back through and get those edges and get those gleanings and then take them to those who were in need. But those who were in need came and put in the work and the effort to go and go through the fields and harvest those edges and harvest those gleanings. We have a picture of that in Ruth. That's what Ruth did. 
She didn't just wait for someone to give her something. She was busy. She wasn't lazy. She was in need. And it was the generosity of Boaz that allowed her to be filled. But she also had a work ethic and she went out and put in effort. Also, though, in the Old Testament, every seven years was to be a year of release where creditors forgave or released what was lent to others. In fact, they were even commanded that when there were poor that needed help and you lent to the poor, you, one, weren't supposed to charge interest to your brethren, and two, if you had some poor person that came up and it's only six months until the year of release, and you're thinking, oh man, I'm going to have to forgive this debt. That's what the year of release was. Whatever is outstanding is forgiven. The person is told in the law, you don't look at it and withhold from your neighbor because the year of release is close. You give them what they need. Even if that means in a couple months you're going to have to forgive that debt and they haven't had any opportunity to repay you, you're still to be generous. In fact, Deuteronomy says you are to open your hands wide to the needy. And also in Isaiah and other places, there were some harsh rebukes towards Israel and Judah when they failed or when they neglected the poor or when they oppressed them. Now, we need to remember the Old Testament was a theocracy. That is, uh, religion and politics went together. It wasn't separation of church and state. There was one law that guided everything. That was the law of Moses. And so, while individuals had a responsibility, it was, in essence, the government also run under the law of Moses that had a responsibility of caring for individuals. Now, what about the New Testament? Under the New Covenant, God's people are no longer a theocracy, but we can exist under any government of mankind. And it's important that we remember the governments are not going to legislate according to scriptures. Some governments uh, will offer no assistance to their needy. Some governments will offer assistance to the needy. What a government chooses to do or not do is not really what's, that, what's important to us. But in the New Testament, however, we see that caring for the needy is still important to God. Caring for orphans and widows is declared by James to be a key portion of pure and undefiled religion. Jesus taught that we are to give to those in need. In Matthew 4, 540, he said, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He assumed his followers would give to the needy. After all, when he gave uh, about the, taught about the attitudes of giving, he said, when you give to the needy, and he taught about the right attitudes. That wasn't if you give to the needy, that was when. Paul mentions that one of the purposes of, a, of our own living, as we've already mentioned earlier, was so that we could share with those in need. And we see some great examples of what you might call welfare within the church. In Acts 2, verse 44 and 45, it says, All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We see another uh, similar passage in, at the end of Acts 4. The first Christians probably faced a great deal of persecution and ostracism, and they were probably in need. And yet the generosity and love of fellow Christians was so great that people were willing to sell their possessions. They were willing to sell their land. They were willing to sell their houses. They were willing to sell whatever they had in order to care for other Christians so that nobody went without. What a beautiful picture that is. But you know, that's also a picture of, in a sense, a welfare program. That's people concerned about the welfare of others and giving of what was, in a sense, rightfully theirs so that they could help others. And so what's the answer to this question? Now, I think what I've tried to show is that it's not wrong for someone to receive help when they need it, whether they have an immediate short-term need or whether it's someone like an orphan or a widow that might need longer-term care. God wants those in need to be provided for, and we should not withhold such help, nor should we judge those that need it. But what about government welfare? Can a Christian accept such in the New Testament? Well, we need to consider a couple of questions. First, is it the government's prerogative or is it even right for the government to help the needy? Now, the New Testament governs the church, not political entities. That being said, God is the ruler of nations and the judge of nations. And the tenor of Scripture would indicate that governments that neglect or worse oppress and exploit the poor and destitute anger God. Therefore, it would seem good and right for governments to do something to provide for the needy. Now, perhaps there's problems sometimes in how this is done. We may look at our welfare system in America and see problems, maybe even some fair criticisms. But I believe that it is not wrong for a government to offer assistance for its people. Now, is it wrong for a Christian to accept that help? 
Well, we've already seen that it's acceptable for the needy to be helped and to accept assistance. And it seems to be in accordance with the principle of Scripture for governments to work to help those under their care. And thus it seems right and acceptable for those in need to be able to accept that assistance. Now, we also, as we talk about this, need to make sure that we are consistent. For instance, sometimes I've heard people say something like, well, it's the church's job to care for the needy, not the government. There is a sense in which that is true, but not entirely. First of all, the church is not just a social organization. The drive of the church is not to obliterate poverty. In fact, the purpose of the church is not a charitable organization. The purpose of the church is the expanse and spreading of the gospel and the glorification of King Jesus. A part of that is us loving those who are in need and helping those who are in need. But simply alleviating poverty is not just the drive of the church. And also, I think sometimes when people make comments like that, we may not stick to that logic faithfully. After all, if it's wrong for the needy to accept welfare or food stamps or something along that line, is it also wrong for a Christian to accept tax credits? There's a lot of tax credits that people get on their taxes. Parents get tax credits, not because they've worked or earned them, but because our government has designed that. And it is essentially a welfare type tax credit to help parents. Is it wrong for a Christian to accept those tax credits? Is it wrong for elderly Christians to accept Medicare? To receive that assistance or those lowered premiums on their health insurance? For that matter, is it wrong for a Christian to use the government health care that might be available to them? Or how about this? Is it wrong for a Christian to live so long that they may actually receive more Social Security benefits than they actually paid in? And they're getting paid more than they paid? Is that fair? Is that right? Well, I've never really heard anybody say any of those things are wrong. But at the root foundation, they're the same thing. It's a welfare type program. So yes, if a Christian is in need and the government offers assistance, it is acceptable for them to receive that assistance. Now the real concern when it comes to welfare systems is this. It's abuse. Abuse by both the government and the users. First, there may be concerns about the way the government handles welfare. If government welfare enables dependence, or worse, if it ensnares people in perpetual poverty, that's a problem. In America, I think there are some of those problems. But I don't think those problems are such that they cannot be overcome by an honest Christian. I think an honest Christian may be able to avail themselves of those services when they have a need, but because they're an honest Christian, they're not going to abuse the system. And there certainly are individuals that abuse the system. Are there people that are lazy and would rather receive a government handout than work? Yes. Are there people that claim disability when they can actually go and actually do some form of work in some fashion? Yes. Are there people that have developed a sense of entitlement and feel that they are owed government assistance? Absolutely. Yes to all of these things. Now, first of all, well, that's a reality. I have no idea what portion of those on welfare or any government program actually fall in those categories. I would also caution us greatly against simply assuming that any person that's on unemployment or disability or welfare is simply lazy and fits in one of these categories. That's not fair to just assume that about individuals. We don't know how widespread those problems are, but the truth is those problems should be irrelevant to the Christian because the Christian should not abuse the system. Now, for a Christian to refuse to work when they are capable to and instead accept assistance or accept um, assistance, whether that is from the church or the government, that is clearly contrary to the teaching of scriptures that Christians are to work with your own hands and provide for yourself. So if a Christian uses government welfare out of laziness, then yes, that is wrong. But if a Christian has a genuine need, Say they have lost a job unexpectedly and need unemployment. That's completely fine. I've known Christians that not because they've been a bad employee or any fault of their own for layoffs or cutbacks, whatever it might be. Many Christians went through this during COVID. And they had to avail themselves of the resources that were available in order to be able to provide for their families. If a Christian's been injured or disabled or sick to the point that they can't work then there are things that can help them. And there's nothing sinful about accepting those things. But again, Christians should be wary to make sure they don't abuse the system. Now, I'm going to go through this last part very quickly. And to me, 
I'm going to try and change some of this. This is why I'm giving a practice run. Because what I've talked about so far is probably what most people are concerned about or interested in. But this last part is something that I think is actually very important. Now, workaholism is a fairly new term. It was coined sometime in the early 70s. And it's a very nuanced topic if you try and read um, any type of actual article about it from the American Psychological Association or any of those that try and actually define and diagnose workaholism. But I'm just going to consider workaholism as when a Christian works too much, if that's possible. And the short, the short answer to that question is yes, it is possible. Now, while work is divinely sanctioned and good, so is rest. As we saw, God rested after his creation. We saw uh, rest legislated under the Mosaic law. The Sabbath was required. Jesus was an incredibly hard worker, and yet there were times that he sought rest for himself and his disciples. That alone should show us that work is not the end-all, be-all. And that's absolutely true of secular work. And when it comes to our secular jobs and careers, we must practice balance. Yes, the Christian should be a good, hard worker. But there's a point when our secular work might actually become a distraction or a hindrance to our spiritual well-being. And I can think of at least three things that that becomes a problem or the reason that that's a problem. First of all, we might be simply guilty of materialism and covetousness. Our country has developed the concept of the American dream. That's the idea that if you work hard enough, you can have whatever you want. And masses of Americans and others are working in the pursuit of more, more money, more stuff, more recognition, more power, just more. Now, work may be good. But when we are motivated to work because of greed, we have a very dangerous problem. Especially dangerous because we're using something good, work and good work ethic, to cover up something evil, greed and covetousness. Maybe we assure ourselves we're not greedy. We're just hard workers. We're not materialistic. We've just been diligent and we're enjoying the fruits of our labor. We should ask ourselves, why do we push so hard for high income jobs, the best jobs? Why do we prioritize college education? over learning God's word? Why do we seek lucrative careers instead of being content with jobs that still enable us to provide? I'm not saying good jobs are bad. I'm not saying a Christian can't have a high-paying job. But when our focus becomes so much on the good job, the high-paying job, the successful job, it may be that we're excusing our greed by saying, well, I have to provide for my family. I've heard that before, and it's the truth. We do have to provide for our family. But there's many people... I'm afraid that they're far beyond providing for their family. They could make much less and still provide for their family and be a better husband or father, but it's greed that continues to move them. We should honestly review our attitudes about work. It might not reveal godly work ethic. It might reveal a covetous heart. And closely related to that is the problem of idolatry. Many people have simply made an idol out of their careers. I've worked with people that readily admitted their career was the most important thing in their life. And I've seen Christians that would never verbally admit that, but their actions prove the same is true. Whether it's greed or desire for accomplishment or just a hypersensitive attitude about work ethic, when our work takes priority over godliness, we have an idol. That means that we're choosing work instead of uh, uh, attending the worship services of the Lord, or whether that means we're behaving unethically because our work requires it, or it simply means that we're not focusing on serving God because we're too busy working. We have an idol. And we may deny our idolatry by claiming that we are just working to provide for our families. But when we neglect the work of the church or spiritual growth because of work, we're sinning. God requires us to work, but God also commands us to love and serve Him wholeheartedly. And if our career gets in the way of that, we have a problem. But also, there is a failure to lead that this problem leads to. And this may not be a popular idea, but we need a biblical work ethic, not an American work ethic. Now, there are things in our culture that are changing for some good reasons and some bad, but historically, in our country, the view of a husband and a father's role in America has been to work and provide a paycheck for his family. And many men have worked long and hard and earned a great deal of money. And they have provided financially for their family. And that's all they've done. In some cases, that's all they've had time for. And worst of all, there are many people in that situation that view themselves or view others like that as good 
successful husbands and father. They haven't had time to read their Bibles alone, much less with their children. They were absent far too often to attend worship services with their family or take their family to gospel meetings. They were too busy making money to demonstrate to their children what it means to give and serve others. They were busy networking and thus unable to spend time associating or fellowshipping with Christians. And if that's you or if that's me, it's time to wake up. And especially men. As the head of the house, it is our job to provide. Not just bring in a paycheck. The man's job is to provide not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, and most of all, spiritually. And when we focus so much on work that we don't have the time or the energy to lead our families and homes, then we are working too much. Now, there's not a way that I can categorically say what is too much or too little. One man may be able to work 60 plus hours a week and still lead his family faithfully. And another man may not be able to. Here's the key. Don't let work interfere with your real job. Whatever you do, Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday, from 8 to 5, 9 to 5, or whatever shift you work, that's not your real job. That's a means of providing for your family, but your real job, if you're a Christian man, is leading your home. And don't you ever let that other job replace your family. You can get another job. It may be difficult. You may have to take a pay cut. You may have to take a demotion. You may have to change jobs and workplaces. But you can change that. You can't change your family. You don't get redos with your children and with your marriage. That's what comes first. And if our work is getting in the way of that, then we need to change our attitudes and our actions when it comes to our secular careers. Well, when it comes to work, the world is going to continue to oscillate between extremes of laziness and workaholism, but God's word provides us the sweet truth. There is goodness in work, and as God's children, we should be diligent workers, but we must never let the world pull us away from God in our work. Instead, we should remember that our true master is Jesus, and always remember the words of Paul in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. If we remember always that we are serving the Lord Christ, I believe we'll have the right attitude that will move us to bypass laziness and slothfulness, but we'll never let work become something that interferes with our families, our congregations, or our own spiritual well-being. Well, that's the study. At this time, we'll extend the invitation. It could be that someone here is at a guilty distance from God, and if you need to obey the gospel, then tonight you have the opportunity to do so. Or if you're a sinner, or if you're a Christian, and you need to make things right, then we hope that you'll make the choice to do that. And if we can pray with you and for you, then we invite you to come forward and let us know how we can assist. So if there be one in need, please come while we stand and while we sing.